epistle of Timothy. Uh, We are still in chapter 1. I keep all these little paper tabs in my Bible so I can jump right to places, and for some reason it's missing. I've gotten to where I can displace anything, even if it's stuck to something else. <laughs> Matter of fact, last night, waiting for Lori and Lindsay and Justin and the kids to get there, and uh, the phone rang, and I had the TV remote in my hand, and sometime during the conversation, I, comp- I, I mislaid the TV remote, and it took me 15 minutes to find it. And when I finally did, it was in a room that I didn't even remember going in to start with. So I'll just say that so you'll realize, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just as human as everybody else is in this room and getting, I think, getting to be a lot more that way every day that passes. But uh, We are going to be looking at chapter 1 again. Actually, we're beginning chapter 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week. And I just want to encourage you to remember all the things that we've talked about up to this point. And one of the, the main things we should get from chapter 1 is this, is we need to understand that, that Paul speaks about grace probably more than anybody else in the whole Bible, maybe even Jesus directly. Uh, he's all about grace. And, and one of the main points he has made here is this, is that uh, if God can save him, he can save anybody. If God's grace is sufficient to cover the sins of, of Paul, then he knows that they're sufficient to cover the sins of anyone. This letter has a lot of purposes. One of those certainly is to encourage, just remember the circumstances of its giving that, uh, that Paul had left Ephesus and he had gone on into Macedonia, and he had, had not left Ephesus because he really wanted to. He was basically driven out of Ephesus. But he had left Timothy there, his protege there, uh, to continue to do the work that he had begun in that place. And Timothy has been faithful uh, in, in doing that. Uh, so one of the reasons for the letter is to encourage Timothy. And we've seen a lot of that in chapter, uh, in chapter 1. Uh, In chapter 2, he begins to give him instructions, more specific particular instructions about particular things. We need to understand something, that these these letters were not written in a void. In other words, the Apostle Paul just doesn't say, you know what, I think maybe I'll, I'll tell him about this. Or, or, or maybe, maybe he might use this at some time in his life or something like We need to understand that these epistles typically were directly written for the primary reason of addressing real and pressing issues that these people were dealing with. So what we're going to find at this point in chapter 2 is, is Paul turns more to that aspect of it, teaching him things that, 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 that are going to enable him to deal with particular specific situations he's having to deal with in the church that's in Ephesus. So just keep that in mind as we read the first uh, four verses. And I don't think we're even going to get this far, but we're going to read the first four This is from the New American Standard, which is the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, their Bibles should be under the chair you're sitting in or the one in front of you. 
First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our, our God of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge uh, of the truth. Notice here, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, first of all, that tells us right there that he's making a major shift in his letter. That he's getting right down to a particular purpose he has in writing. And this, evidently, is one of the things that is most pressing on Paul's mind. This is his first order of business. And I just want to challenge us this morning with the idea that prayer certainly has a primacy in the church in every aspect of its existence. That prayer is one of the most important things that we do as believers. It's one of the most important things that we do when we're here on Sunday morning. It needs to take precedent over just about everything else that we do. And let me just say, I'm encouraged as your pastor because I know that we have a very active women's group that prays and we have an active men's group that prays. And I know that there's a lot of prayer that takes place in all of the small groups. But let me tell you, as much as we pray, we can't pray enough. It needs to be a focus. It needs to be a principle and primary focus of everything that we do, every Bible study, every church meeting, every time the the worship team meets, every time that we do anything, it needs to begin with a word of prayer. Otherwise, what we do is just the things that people do. In other words, it lays the groundwork. It, it, it lays the path on which we proceed, and it, and it makes a difference in, in whether what is uh, decided or what is done or what is accomplished is a thing of people or it is a thing of God. Paul very much understands all of that, and he's impressing that upon Timothy. First of all, first of all, before you do anything else, pray. He uses a Greek word here, parakaleo, which can be interpreted different ways. But I think the one here that is most important is urge. Sometimes it can mean to appeal to, but I, I think this is there, there's a there's a motion going on here. There's an activity going on here, and the term urge brings to bear how important this is. 
It's not like I'm just making a suggestion to you or, or, or this is a possibility maybe you ought to give some consideration to. He's saying here, I am urging you. And this is the most important thing that I'm going to say to you in this letter. Prayer has to have primacy in all that you do. He actually uses three Greek words here that each one of them, in certain cases, is translated as prayer or as praying. The interesting thing about it is this, is each one of them adds a li- at least a little bit of a nuance to our whole understanding of what prayer is that we would not have without it. The first one is interpreted sometimes as supplication or petition or, uh, or, or something that is prayed for that's really needed. You need to understand that, that, that it really emphasizes the, the necessity or the need for, for praying to take place. It also is a prayer that is offered in humbleness and humility. My, God, my friends, that, that has always got to be our stature in prayer. Is humbleness and humility. I recently had someone pray for me, and something they said shocked the mess out of me. I dropped my jaw. Because in that prayer, they said this I command that this man be healed. I mean, if we really got to that point that some people in the church really believe that what prayer is is a vehicle by which we command Almighty God to do something, isn't that absolute nonsense? I think very often people completely misunderstand prayer. Very often, I think the general concept people have about prayer is it's, it's our opportunity to convince God to do something that we want him to do. I would remind us this morning that God is absolutely, totally sovereign in all things. That really what prayer is, is not so much for God's benefit. I guess it's in a sense it is because it's a form of worship and all of that. But more than that, it's, our, it's for our benefit. It's the time when we are basically saying to the Lord, may your will be done. Get my will in tune with what your will happens to be. The second word is very often interpreted as intercession. And I think it really emphasizes one of the principal parts that Christians play in the big picture. You may not think of yourself as an intercessor. An intercessor basically is one who stands between a person and God. If you want to know what an intercessor really looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who intercedes between all who believe in his, his Father in heaven. He stands in the gap. 
Now, you may not think of yourself in a such a sense, but there's, there's, there's a way in which the Bible describes us as performing that function to some degree, not like Jesus does. Don't get, be confused about it. But now when you're praying for a particular individual, what you're doing, in a sense, is you are standing the gap between them and God. And you're, you're bringing God's attention upon this particular thing. Pleading with God in regard to the interest of other people. The last one of those three words has to do, is basically the the word that is typically normally interpreted as, as prayer. Now, let me ask you something. If you were someone to ask you, what does prayer mean? What does the term prayer mean? Do you have any idea what you might say? <laughs> it's probably one of those words that's kind of hard to define, right? But so what I would say to you is that basically it's a reverent address made to God and to God alone. In other words, prayer is conversation with God, period. The only one that you pray to. So he mentions those three different facets of prayer, and then he talks about thanksgivings, Eucharist, basically. In other words, expressing gratitude in those prayers. And let me tell you, guys, prayers without gratitude are not prayers at all. Gratitude is a big chunk of what praying is. Thankfulness. Thanksgiving. That there's a God in heaven that you can pray to. There's a God in heaven who listens to you. There's a son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world and lived and died for you and rose from the dead for you and is at the right hand of God the Father right now for you. Interceding for you. Paul urges Timothy that that prayer be made on behalf of all men. Now let me ask you, how, how big do you think the need for prayer is? You think it's little or you think it's... Big, let me ask you this. You think this would be too far-fetched to say this, that if you and I did nothing for the rest of eternity, we could never fill the void? That's how great the need of prayer is. Now, I want to talk about this all men. Okay? You're going to see that same phrase used in verse 4. And very often people take some things the Bible says maybe in light that is not, is not intended. Let me ask you something. Do you think it's conceivable that all people will be prayed for? You think it's conceivable that all people will be prayed for or could be prayed for? In other words, do you think it's conceivable as Paul is, is writing to Timothy that, that Paul is literally telling him that he's supposed to pray for absolutely everybody? 
Okay. <laughs> Need to understand that. Because obviously that's not even possible. He couldn't even pray for everyone that was in the world that was living during the day that he was, right? So we need to understand something that in this little phrase here is not intended to be taken absolutely literal as if some people would like to do it. I don't think anyone in their right mind would take it literally here, but there are a lot of people that in verse 4 do. And I just want you to remember verse (laughs) 1 when we get to verse 4. Context, context, context has everything to do with how we rightly understand what is being spoken about in the Word of God. Keep it in context. It's very easy, and people do it all the time, to pull out a verse here, there, or yonder to prove a particular point that they think the Bible teaches without giving any consideration to context. And let me tell you, if you do that, you can make the Bible say just about anything and everything. And that's one of the reasons why the church, as you look at it today, there's so many differences of opinion about this, that, and the other. And the reason is, is this, is very often people look on the Bible as an index that you just go to, and if you have a point to make, then you just look for proof text, and there you go. That's what it says. So I'm right, and you're wrong. But just remember, guys, you have to keep it in context. He uses the word anthropos here, which is trans- can be translated as man, okay? Uh, but it does not always mean just male people of, the, of humankind. It's also used to apply to people. So I just want you to know something, ladies. You're not being left out of this picture. It's not Paul saying pray for the guys and forget about the gals. not saying that at all. It's everyone. Our tendency typically is this, is to pray for people that we are in relationship with. In other words, I would imagine most of you have kids, and you're praying for those kids. And some, most, a lot of you have grandkids, and you're praying for those grandkids. And some of you may have great-grandkids, and you're praying for those grandkids. You pray for your neighbors, maybe. You pray for your friends, and so on. Well, one of the things that Paul is saying here is you've got to get out of the box. You can't just focus your prayer life on this closed circle of people. It's got to go beyond that. You would pray for all manners of people. From those that people would consider to be very prominent, which we're going to in just a minute, to those people who other folks would think would be almost insignificant. Let me just say this, that uh, 
If you struggle spiritually, if you look at your life and you just don't feel like you're very spiritual at all, I think one of the things you really need to look at is your prayer life. Because let me tell you, the two things, you can't, you can't have one without having the other. In other words, if you want a spiritual life, you need to have a prayer life. If you want to have a deep relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to have a deep prayer life, a heartfelt prayer life, not just going through some cursory prayers here, there, and yonder. <coughs> Martin Luther, they say that he, with actually a quotation that's written some, in one of his writings somewhere, and, uh, well, he wrote a little book on prayer at one point to his barber. barber asked him to teach him how to pray, so he wrote him a little book, and it's still available today. It may come from there, or it's related to that. But they, he says that, that he felt, basically felt like he would waste the day away if he didn't spend three hours in prayer before he did anything every day. Let me ask you something. Have you ever, for one time in your whole lifetime, spent three hours in, in, in steady, endless prayer? Can you imagine having that kind of a prayer life? Steve Brown, many of you heard that name before. He's one of the foremost known pastors in, or preachers in the PCA. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have him for one of my professors when I was in seminary. And I've had some personal conversations with Steve Brown over the years and, uh, and all of that. Uh, but one of the things that always impressed us as seminarians was his prayer list. You know, it was great if your name was on Steve Brown's prayer list. And let me tell you, if you were in one of his classes, he was praying for you. If you've ever seen him before, he's one of those people that has these huge bags under his eyes. I mean, they're almost as big as his cheeks at this point, and every time I see him, they get bigger. The reason is the man gets up at 4 o'clock every day, and he spends hours in prayer before the day begins. Can you imagine what the prayer what Paul's prayer list was like? We can't even begin to fathom it. How many hours did this apostle spend on his knees in fervent prayer every single day? We don't have a clue, but we know it was a lot. It consumed a big part of Paul's day every day praying for people. But Paul knew this. He knew he needed to get out of the box, and so did Timothy. And have prayer that went way beyond the relationships they had directly with other people. Verse 2, on behalf of kings and all who are in positions of authority, in order that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and respectability. Let me ask you something. How much of your prayer life has to do with praying for people who are in positions of authority and prominence? Let me tell you what, mine's sorely lacking. I'll be honest with you. 
But what Paul is saying here is you need to pray for these people. You see, he's identifying kings and those in in positions of prominence as being key in a a lot of the big picture. And and, and what I'm getting at is this, is he's talking about praying for people who have the ability to influence lots of other people. What they do affects other people to a large degree. And so we're talking about leadership in, 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 in every level from, you know, the small groups all the way up to the big groups that we call nations and things like that. So seriously, guys, how much time do you spend praying for people in government? Leaders. You've heard this quote before, Lord Acton. He was a 19th century British politician. He said this, and it's been quoted a lot lately, that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of politics. I'm tired of the, you know, back and forth and 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 back and forth. And, you know, every time this, this person burps, then this blows into this big story and, you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, it's gotten to be the point of being absolutely ridiculous to the point I can't even look at it anymore because it just makes me sick. It makes me want to throw up. But let me tell you something. We cannot have the attitude of disconnect. We can't say that's just the way it is, and so we just need to let things go. We need to be active, guys. And I'm not talking about going around and bad-mouthing this person, that person, or this party, or that party, or this, that, or the other. What I'm talking about, we need to be proactive, and we need to be praying in the middle of all of this. And let me tell you something, if we're not praying in the middle of it, we got not one ground to gripe about anything that anybody says or anybody does. Paul lived in the days when kings ruled the world, maybe some queens. And we understand that for the most part, they were wicked and evil people. They completely misunderstood the purpose of God-given authority. They were on the impression that God created all these people in my little kingdom to take care of me, to serve me, to look after my every want, my every need. They completely misunderstood the reason God had put them in that position. And the position was for them to serve the people, to take care of the people, to defend the people, to make the people's lives worth living. And very often what they did instead was they lived high on the hog at the expense of everybody else. Their power was absolute. And the vast majority of them were obviously very corrupted. All you have to do is look at world history to test that fact. 
things are better in the world today. And I guess there's, there are a few nations today that we have a king and a queen that actually rule. You know, most of the places where they still have monarchies, they don't have much political power or any of that sort of thing. But we still have people in those positions who sometimes almost give you the impression that they believe that they are a king or a queen who has absolute power. And they also believe that the reason they've been given that authority is for their benefit, not for the benefit of the people they're supposed to serve. If you want to see a true king, who do we need to look to? King Jesus. I mean, we have that perfect king in Jesus. Jesus came to serve. He didn't come to be served. We need to have that in our own heart. And Paul gives a reason here for why you want to do this. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. (laughs) Can you imagine? That's why we're supposed to be praying, because we get some benefit from it. I don't know about you, but that's not exactly what I expected Paul to give as the reason for doing it. Remember that document called the Declaration of Independence? Remember that? Written by Thomas Jefferson. Begins with these words, We hold these truths be self-evident that all men are created equal, that, uh, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. You have to believe that Thomas Jefferson probably had scripture verses like this maybe in mind when he was writing those words. That people have a right to a good and reasonable and tranquil and quiet life. Is that the world that you see out there? So how's life going for you? Nice and quiet? Tranquil? Some of you probably are saying yes, I think it is. Let me ask you something. What do you think would be appropriate for us to be praying in regard to the people that have authority and power over us? There you go. Well, what I would say to you, there's something that goes, I mean, that's very, that's very real, and that, that is something that, that we, we need to incorporate into our prayers, and that they would be following the will of God, whatever they do and whatever they decide and whatever they say. But see, I would say there's something that is most fundamental to all of it, and that is this, 
that they would know God themselves. That they would know God through Jesus Christ. Because we know that that is the only way that they will be a true servant leader who will always do what is most beneficial for their people rather than themselves. So when we, we're looking at officials, one of the things is this, is we need to be praying that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ above everything. That supersedes everything else. Because that is the most important prayer that we can pray for anybody, right? I don't care who they are. As Jenny was talking about God-given wisdom and prudence. Let me tell you something. Some of the the people that are converted, people I'm convinced are Christians, are some of the most imprudent people I know. They don't seem to have a whole lot of God-given wisdom. Now let me just ask you something. Do you see a lot of God-given wisdom going on in the national political today? Every now and then you'll hear someone say something that really has a lot of wisdom and and prudence about it. But let me tell you, I don't care where you're coming from. It's a rare kind of thing. And we know this. We know that politicians, what they're doing typically is they're playing to the crowd. Right? What about this? that God would guard their heart from the corruption that very often comes with their office. What about protection of their families? Because very often their families become targets of every Tom, Dick, and Harry that's trying to damage a person. Etc., etc., etc. I just wrote down a little prayer here. Because we don't have a king, but we do have a president, right? And we would say probably that the president of the United States has most authority over us as far as the political government realm goes, right? National realm goes. Are you praying for our president? Seriously. So this is kind of what came to mind. You can take it or leave it. Lord, we do not truly know the president's heart. But you do. You know if he truly believes in our Lord Jesus Christ or not. If he does, then we humbly ask that you strengthen that faith and dependence upon you. If he does not, then we pray that you would humble him before your throne of grace and cause the light of Christ to shine deeply into his dark and blackened heart. Show him the depth of his depravity that he might understand the depths of your grace. 
We pray as well that you would grant to him the wisdom of heaven, that through him you would rule over us. Above all things, make him your man, that he can be our man. That might be the very first time I ever prayed for Donald Trump. I hope it won't be the last time. I can't understand why anybody would even do it. It's almost like you almost have to be insane to pursue one of these high offices like this. But it's not a question of are we going to pray or should we pray or all we pray. Guys, we have to. It is part of our vocation. God has called us to many things, as this is one of them. It's not just like, well, I'll leave that up to other people. You know, so-and-so prays really, really good. They have these great, long, lengthy, all beautiful prayers and stuff like that, and I can't hardly put two words together, so I'll just let them do the praying. That's not what that is, guys. Prayer is a vocation of every Christian. And part of that vocation is for us to be praying for those who rule over us. And let me tell you, if we don't have a tranquil and quiet life, and we're not praying, we've got nothing to gripe about. Not anything. Right? Well, we're going to stop there, and we will pick up next week.